So I was watching online this week a debate between two Christian pastors, and they were really debating on how we should share the gospel with, with this new world that we're living in, a world that doesn't have the biblical knowledge that it once had, a world that's fairly skeptical, a world that uh, just sees the, the hypocrisy and a, the abuses going on in the church. And so they were debating, where do we begin and what, what is the best way to do it? Now, what was interesting, both of these men are absolutely followers of Jesus Christ. No question in my mind. Both of them are thoughtful Bible teachers and good theologians. They just differed on, they differed on methodology. How do we do it? Where do we begin? It was interesting to hear them debate, and they were very gracious to one another, and they were very civil to one another, and uh, treated each other as brothers in Christ, so that was very good. The interesting thing were the comments. The comments were incredible. I was reading the comments, and I'm going, what is going on here? And I'm assuming, and don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that most of these comments were coming from other Christians, as they were listening to this debate and as they were kind of making comments. Here's some of the comments they made. And it was generally about one of the pastors and his position and how he was, where he was proposing you begin with evangelism. And I don't really want to name name it. I don't want you to get caught up on that. But here's some of the comments they made about one of the pastors, some of the folks made. He's cowardly in his faith. His father must be disappointed in him. He's a false teacher, very confused and crazy. Is he even saved? Uneducated fool, and then heretic. And again, we're not talking about a major doctrine. We're not talking about, we're talking about an approach. That's all we're talking about. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing for the message this week, and I was thinking, You know, this is kind of the problem with what's going on within Christianity. We have people who basically don't get the fact that when you are a follower of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is dwelling within you and you're being obedient to His Word, one of the things that should be happening is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. And I'm going, what's going wrong here? And I think the passage that we're going to look at this weekend kind of hits at the heart of the issue. So if you would follow along with me, we have chair Bibles if you don't have one, but uh, Mark chapter 2 verses, just going to do 18 verses 18 through 22. And we're going to find a kind of an interesting passage. And Jesus says something at the end of our reading that is very um, you have to go and un- you have to understand what Jesus is doing. He's making a statement about what his ministry was meant to be and what he was trying to do. So uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to Jesus and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. 
No one sews a a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So what I want to do for just a few minutes is get the lights back on. (laughs) There you go. That worked. That was not intentional. (laughs) I want to talk about what does the Old Testament say about fasting? What does the Old Testament say about fasting? So uh, there's a couple of times, and I I can't go into a detailed study here, but let me give you a few times. Let's zoom in on a few passages. We're not going to really turn there. I'm going to make reference to them. I'll give you the references, and you can follow along later because we really don't have time to do that. Um, David, remember David? He sinned with Bathsheba. They had this uh, little child, and the little child was immediately sick. And David began to, it says that he fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. And the people around him were very nervous because they said, he's, gonna, he's just distraught. And what was David doing? He was begging for the life of his child, begging for the life of his child. And God said no. And then all of a sudden, the servants were afraid to tell David the child had died. And once they told David, the child, was dead. David went and washed himself up and cleaned himself and went on. And they go, we don't get this. When the child was sick and you were fasting and you were in sackcloth, and now the child is dead. And David says, I know one day I will be with this child again. But but David was pleading. It was a really traumatic moment in his life. And he begged and he pled with God. All right, so that's the first one. There's another time in the book of Esther where Esther is a queen and she's going to go in to basically reveal that there's an extermination notice for her people, the Jews. They don't know she's a Jew and she's afraid of what's going to happen, but she knows that God has put her in this place for such a time like this. And so she tells everyone, she says, uh, there is great mourning among the Jews with fasting, Esther chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 16. And so Esther asks them to, to, to fast and to get God, you know, to basically say, God, we're we really, we need you. We desperately need you. And our fasting is a way for us to express how much we need you. So it was a really critical moment, again, like David's critical moment, right? Let me give you another one. So the book of Jonah, Jonah's this prophet. God says, go to these people. And these people were the enemies, the worst enemy that is one of the worst enemies Israel had. And they were in this direction. And Jonah gets on a boat in this direction. And you know about Jonah and the great fish. And finally, Jonah goes and he preaches. And my guess is that his sermon wasn't, you know, just booming, you know, repent. And I care about you because he didn't really care about the people. You see that in there. But in, S, in, in, uh, J, S, or excuse me, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, uh, and so on, he says, uh, they basically, the people, the king of the, these, these wicked people say, we need to, he says, let them not eat or drink. In other words, let them fast. Hopefully God will hear us and he will spare us. It's, it's, it's a critical moment. They're about to be wiped out. 
We have one more. Let me just talk about that just for a second. So Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer of the king. He hears news about the ruins uh, in the, the city of Jerusalem in Israel, and he's concerned about it, and, he, and he, he, he feels compelled by God to do something, so he fasts. It says, when I heard these things about the ruin, I, I sat down and I wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Why? Because he's going to go before the king and he's going to ask for permission to go and to be part of the rebuilding of his city. It's a critical moment, right? Here's what I want you to see about fasting in the Old Testament. Fasting in the Old Testament was a way of responding to extreme circumstances. It wasn't a ritual. Uh, there, there are, if you, if you count them up and somebody has, I haven't, uh, somewhere around 613 commands in the Old Testament. There's not one command in the Old Testament that tells you to fast. Well, what about fasting in the New Testament? What about fasting in the days of Jesus? Remember the story, we kind of referenced it. Uh, two men go up to the temple to pray. One was this Pharisee. And one was this lowly tax collector, right? And the lowly tax collector is crawling in and his face is down and he, he acknowledges he's a sinner, he's not worthy. But the, the Pharisee goes strolling in and he says, I do this and I do that. And then in the midst of that, he says, I fast twice a week. Twice a week I fast. You see, the heart of many Pharisees in the time of Jesus was, look at how devoted I am. Look at how I'm denying myself. I really am holy. I'm totally sold out for you. And it was a showy thing. In the days of the New Testament, fasting had become a common ritual. Fasting was something that the very spiritual did, often for recognition. They took pride in it. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And they would have parades, you know, and they would look gaunt. They would try to look gaunt to sell it, to say, look at how miserable I am. Now, Jesus wasn't against fasting. In fact, he fasted. You might have remembered in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is led into the wilderness. And what does he do for 40 days and 40 nights? He fasts. But what is he doing it for? He is about to be tested by the enemy, right? Now, what is he doing? What does that represent? Remember, Adam and Eve were in the garden, had a perfect environment. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of rest. They had a, they, there was no sin at this point. They were in a perfect environment, and they chose to disobey God. Now, where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness. He's not in the garden. He's with the wild animals. He's hungry. He's starving. And the enemy comes, and one of the first things the enemy does is, aren't you hungry? You see what, what's going on here? Jesus is fasting because this is a critical, critical moment. And Jesus passes the test that Adam and Eve failed for us. Jesus fasted not as a sign of spirituality, not as a ritual, not as a necessity, uh, but to prepare for his testing. Well, what about fasting in the New Testament? Well, we have occasions of fasting in the New Testament. Where are they? Well, one of them is in Acts chapter 9, and this is a, there's a moment where uh, the man who persecuted the church, Saul, is on the road, and all of a sudden God appears to him, and Jesus appears to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
<laughs> and, and Saul is, is overcome, and he's blinded by the light and the glory of God. And it says that after this moment on the, this road to Damascus, it says that he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. He fasted. In other words, Saul is understanding there's a critical juncture in my life. And Saul, at this point of his life, went from being Saul to being Paul. He did a 180. The elders in the early church, the leaders in the early church, before they, they chose leaders, it says, and they fasted. After they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands and sent them off, Paul and Barnabas. And so when they were, were doing choosing and when they were sending people out and commissioning them to do the ministry, they fasted. So these are special moments. These are moments where, where we stop and say, you, have you ever have a moment where you're ready to do something and it's a it's an important thing and you 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 uh, somebody says out of the blue says we should pray and everybody goes yeah yeah why didn't we think of that why do we pray right well what's going on here is even more intense than that what's going on here is we're about to make this decision we're in this really critical point of our lives we should fast we should fast. The early church leaders would often fast when they were making important decisions like choosing elders or doing other things along those lines. Now Jesus says to us very clearly in Matthew chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others and to be seen to them. If you do, you will, not, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to fast, do it privately, do it quietly. Don't let anybody know that you're doing it. So here's a, a quick summary, because here's what we've done today. I think we've turned fasting into this spiritual discipline that we should do on a regular basis. I would guess that many of you don't regularly fast, and you feel guilty about it, because you heard that you should be doing that, and you're not. And you feel like, well, I guess I'm just not that elite Christian. Let me just summarize what we've said so far. Uh, there's no command in the New Testament to fast. We're never told to fast. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't, but we're never commanded to do it. Fasting in the New Testament is a response, just like it was in the Old Testament, to extreme situations. It wasn't a regular discipline. Jesus instructs us that if we fast to do it privately, not for recognition. Fasting doesn't release uh, any supernatural power to us. And I know some people believe that, but essentially God doesn't say, okay, now that you're fasting, I'm going to kick it into gear. By the way, I did a little research because I was thinking about where the disciples were trying to cast out the demon, and you, you maybe you know that passage. And I thought that when I read it, it says, these only come out by prayer and fasting. But when you look at the, the, actual, the actual text, it doesn't say that. These come out by prayer. It doesn't add fasting on there. The earliest manuscripts don't even have that. But the point is, this became a practice in the early church. Again, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't fast. I'm saying we have a different view of fasting. We've made fasting into this, this works-based thing that we do. 
Fasting doesn't put us on God's special list. I like you best list. But fasting might be something we should do when we're in situations where we need clarity, when we're about to make important decisions, or we want to clarify our focus on God. Because that's what they did in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus did. That's what the early church did. They said, this is not just a moment. It's a fasting moment. We need to fast. It's a serious moment. All right, so that's essentially what the Bible, the Old and New Testament says about fasting. Nothing wrong with fasting. But when you turn it into a spiritual discipline, a checkoff list, as a sign of your spirituality, you're doing exactly what the Pharisees did. The one Pharisee goes into the temple asking for forgiveness, and he says, look at what I'm doing, God. I fast twice a week. Jesus says two people went into that temple. One didn't fast, but they came repentant. They came broken, and he was forgiven. But the showman walked out still in his sins, even though he fasted, even though he gave his money, even though he practiced righteousness. And that's the heart of what we want to talk about. What do we learn from, uh, from this passage? What, what, what do we take home? Because we can walk and say, okay, so that's the view of fasting. So I guess I'm off the hook. I don't have to. I that's not what I said. I said there is a place and a time for fasting, but it's very different than what we may have heard. What do we learn from our passage? Number one, God wants our heart, not our rituals. God wants our heart, not our rituals. We often make helpful rituals a replacement for our hearts. And in doing this, you, you, we think, I'm doing this for God, so he must be pleased with me. Now, where were some Old Testament rituals? Well, there was the sacrificial system. There was circumcision on the eighth day for a, a baby boy, right? Uh, there was, uh, you were supposed to give 10% off the top. That was part of the Old Testament ritual, right? Uh, there's an interesting story as you read it. King Saul is instructed by God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. They were a wicked people. And God was using his people to punish the Amalekites. And he sends King Saul and he says, I want you to destroy them, completely destroy them. Well, King Saul doesn't obey. Instead, what does he do? He brings back the king, um, Agag, and he brings back some of the spoils. Now, God says, no, don't do that. But he disobeys God. So God raises up Samuel. And he sends Samuel to, to uh, confront Saul and say, you know, what are you doing? And I want to just read you that because uh, the, the, the passage is uh, 1 Samuel 15. You don't need to turn there. Just write it down. 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to start reading verse 19. Um, this is Samuel speaking to Saul. He says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Now, notice Saul's reply. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went uh, on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agad, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what, they, what, was, devoted to God, of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. So you see what he's doing here. He's disobeying God. And he's saying, God, I know you said this, but I think. 
Samuel replied. Now, this, this verse is an incredible verse. What Samuel's response, Samuel says this. This is verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. I remember the first time I heard that phrase, and it was in a Christian song by Keith Green. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's the heart of what we're talking about tonight. That's the heart of what we're talking about this weekend. No matter where you are, whether you're at this campus, where you're, whether you're at the Rosha campus, you're listening online, the question before us this weekend is this. To obey God is better than sacrifice. What are some New Testament rituals that we practice? Well, we practice baptism, right? It's a ritual. Practice the Lord's table. We're going to do that in a, in a few minutes. We fellowship with each other. We give a tithe, 10% off the top. That's part of the, the ritual that we practice, right? But here's what we do. We think, I'm obeying the ritual. I'm doing what's expected. But here's the problem. Many Christians are going through the motion of worship on the weekends. There are people attending, and I would say Hope Church and other churches, evangelical churches, that are going through the motions. They will worship in song. They will worship around the word. They will, they will listen to the word. They will, they will celebrate communion. And they will, they, will, they will pray. And then they will go out and live like hell. And God says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And we think, God doesn't care. God doesn't notice it. Look at all the good things I'm doing. I'm giving my money. I'm here. I'm doing communion. I'm serving. I'm praying. I'm reading the Bible. All right, so I want the women just to imagine this, if you could, just for a minute. Play along with me. Imagine that perfect person comes along. It's the, imperf it's the perfect night at dinner, and you feel that you're really attracted to this person, and they, they, you have a wonderful evening, a wonderful meal, and all of a sudden they, they open this box, and they, they kneel down next to you and say, would you marry me? And it's a beautiful ring, and of course you say, yes, I will. And so you have this, this beautiful engagement, and, and not only that, you have a storybook wedding, and a beautiful reception, and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful honeymoon. And on your, on your honeymoon, or on your anniversary, there's always flowers, there's always a remembrance. On your birthday, always remembered. Valentine's Day never misses. The rest of the time, he treats you like garbage. He's addicted to porn. He's having multiple affairs. And he shows regular fits of rage. Is that a good husband? How do you feel as a wife? He's doing all the right things on the right days. 
That's exactly what some of us are doing to God. We're doing all the right things on the right days and the right ways. We're going through the practice. Then we're living like hell. And we expect God to say, Oh, thank you so much for what little you give me. And God says what you would as a wife. I'm done with you. I am absolutely done with you. Too many Christians excuse bad behavior because they read the Bible every day. They pray and fast. They give their money. They think God is pleased with them. But here's what God says. This is a passage that it'll be up on the screen. Here's what it says. I want to read this to you. It's it's stark. God says to his people, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Well, that doesn't sound good. We have a problem. The problem is that we're natural-born hypocrites. That we can go through the motion and just allow it to be going through the motion. And we can play this this two-faced game. We can compartmentalize Jesus and our relationship with him. But then we have our other life. And we think that God, somehow or another, doesn't see it and doesn't care. Here's Here's the hope. The hope is the problem with the old covenant, the problem with the nation of Israel was... Their heart wasn't in it. The first uh, faith religion that I was practicing as a boy and as a young man was, I was going through the motion. Went to church every week, went to confession once a month. My heart wasn't in it. If my mom didn't make me, I wouldn't have gone. But I had to go. I did the prayers. I said the prayers. I verbalized the prayers. And you know what? I couldn't get out of there quick enough. What was the problem? My heart. And that's the second point. We're going to close with this one. God empowers our behavior to align with our hearts. God empowers our behavior to align with our hearts. The gift of the new covenant. And Jesus, what he's doing, he says, it's very interesting what Jesus does. Jesus is talking about, you see, he says, you know, you have these, you know, he did this whole wineskin thing. And some of you are going, I have no idea what that's, is he, was he brewing wine? What was going on there? No, no. The point that Jesus is making is a theological point. It's an incredible point that he's making. He's essentially saying, you can't put the new in with the old. The old wine skins are already stretched. If you put new wine in and when it begins to ferment, it begins to expand, it will rip the old wine skins open because they're, they're brittle. And he makes a kind of a cryptic comic comment about the Old Testament. Jesus is essentially saying that 
he's bringing about a new way, a new covenant. Jesus is the new wine. Judaism, legalism, and paganism were the old wineskins, and, and Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Judaism and the replacement to paganism. He's saying, I'm bringing a whole new way. You're all caught up in your performance. You pray and you fast. You do all these things to be seen. And your heart's not in it. That's the problem. Your heart is not in it. And he says, but I have a solution to that. And the solution he talks about is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. You have that verse up on the screen. Let me read it to you. This is the promise that uh, God made. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart the stone, your your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, Jesus is saying the biggest problem was with the old covenant was there was no there was no place for your heart but here's what i'm going to do i'm going to change your heart so you won't need a law you'll have the spirit of god you'll have a new heart that will guide you and direct you jesus i'm now i'm not going to put new wine in these old wineskins i'm going to i'm going to throw the whole system is going to be fulfilled by me i'm bringing a whole new system we're going we're going to do things differently now you're going to follow god because you want to not because you have to You're going to do things because you love him, not because you feel, I guess I better. See, Jesus is bringing about a new way, a new kingdom, new hearts. Not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. And until Jesus gives you a new heart, nothing will change. So the question, I just want to close with this. How do you know when you have a new heart? Some of you may not know that because my guess is there were, there were a number of these comments that came from people that are caught up in legalism. They follow Jesus. They, do all, they go all through all the right motions, but their heart is not. It's still a heart of stone. It hasn't been changed. I think that's a problem. I think we have a lot of unconverted Christians in our churches today who don't know Jesus and don't have the Spirit of God and don't have these new hearts. So you you may be here and you go, you know, I kind of got this thing going on where I feel I'm doing this stuff, but my heart's not in it. And it's not just now and then, it's like constant. How do you know? How do you know that God has given you a new heart? Here, this is just from my experience. I don't have chapter and verse, but I can tell you from my experience. Here's things that I noticed that were different. And, and you'll see it. Saul became Paul, right? There's a difference. Persecutor of the church to promoter of the, the greatest promoter of the church that we ever, we ever knew, right? Here's the things that I've noticed. I have a new inner voice of conviction, the indwelling Holy Spirit. I know that when, let me just give you a a flat out, just down to earth illustration. So there are times, and I know it's hard to believe, that Carol and I disagree. 
And there have been things said over the last 30-some years that uh, were not nice, charitable, loving, caring, things along those lines. And um, what happens, what has happened in some of those situations is that we have separated because we need to, and I don't mean separated, I never define what I'm talking about. We've kind of got space from each other in the same house and come together later on to talk about it. It's not like separated for, you know, I'm living here and she's living there. No, no, not that. But here's what's happened in my heart. This is this has really happened in my heart. The Spirit of God says to me, you know you're wrong. You know what you said was absolutely awful. You know you need to go apologize. And it's absolutely not me. I mean, it is me, but it's not me. It's a new heart. It's the Spirit of God within me. And, I, and I'm there going, yes, I know. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> I don't argue. There's no argument. I, it's like I can argue with Carol, but I can't argue with this indwelling Holy Spirit. I can't. And so it comes down to a point where I come back to Carol and I say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me. That's the Spirit of God. That's not Matt Collins. That's the Spirit of God working in my heart. And he does the same thing in her heart too. And when God is both dwelling in both hearts, God doesn't pull people apart. He brings people back together. And he brings people to repentance. And sometimes I have to repent to her and she has to repent to me. And we have to ultimately repent to God. And that comes from within. I don't know where, you know, I, I know I didn't have that before, but I have it now. That's one change. The second one was when I was an, a new Christian, and it still happens today. Not as often, but it happens. Where, where I hear a preacher or pastor say something or hear something be taught, and I'm going, that's not right. And then I'll look at the Word of God and I'll read through it and I'm going, oh, it is. It is right. It's right here. <laughs> and it's like, there, I go, I, I didn't agree with that, but he's right or she's right. This teaching is right. Now, the opposite is true, too. When you hear a false teaching, you go, well, that's wrong and here's why. But it's just something that I'm just giving you illustrations of how it worked in my life. And I already kind of hit on this. I, I have a, a desire to admit that I'm wrong and to confess my sin. I think Christians want to win and be right. And you know what? It doesn't matter whether I'm right or whether I win. I have a new desire to follow God. I, I'm not here preaching this weekend because I have to. I'm here because I want to. I don't worship God because I have to. I do it because I want to. I don't read my Bible because I have to. I do it because I want to. I don't pray because I have to. I do it because I want to. There's a, a gratefulness in my heart that I begin to grasp what he's done for me and I can't ever repay him and i'm just in awe of what he would do for me and it breaks my heart again it breaks my heart 
I demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit sometimes and oftentimes when I'm under pressure. And I've had a couple people say to me, I don't know how you did that. If it had been me and they were doing that, I would have. And I go, I have in the past. But I'll tell you what, and I'll say this, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit in me. Restraining me, pulling me back, saying, just let it go. Don't get all bent out of shape. Be gracious, be kind, be patient, be forgiving. Those are things that, I'm sorry, up to my own self, I can't do that. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what it looks like. That's all I'm trying to do. All right, one last thing. What would people find if they could just look at your heart, look at your thoughts, look at, you, you know, would they, would they look at it and say, oh yeah, man, there's this over here, and then there's, oh boy, there's, there's this, I mean, this is bad, this is really nasty stuff, and you, they find there's two compartments there. That's not what we want to see, right, hopefully? But what if, what if they were to look at your life and say, yeah, there's nothing here, it's it is, they are who they, they say they are. There's no masks, there's no, there, there's a transparency. Yes, they're not perfect, but they're, they're, there's an alignment here. There's not this huge gap. They're not worshiping hypocritically on the weekends and then living like hell during the week. That, there's not that disconnect. You know, we have this phrase about uh, how does a person move in their relationship with God? We say first they believe, then they, hopefully they belong, and then they become. This is about becoming, becoming more like Jesus Christ. So I want to close with a question. Who are you becoming? Who are you this year that you weren't last year as far as a follower of Jesus Christ? What, what is changing in your life on a regular basis? What is true of your life this year that wasn't true last year? How is God changing you little by little, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year? If that's not happening, then you should be alarmed. Because you may be more like a Pharisee than you ever dreamed or ever wanted. So Jesus says to us, if you're just going through the motions, knock it off. I get it. I see it. I'm not impressed. It needs to stop. Let's pray. So, Father, help us, because without your spirit, without your moving in our lives, changing our hearts, there is no potential change. There's no possible change. It's not about trying harder. It's not about uh, just putting more effort in. It's about understanding that unless your spirit is leading and guiding us, uh, we will never show the fruit of the spirit. We will never, uh, be, uh, we'll never be directed by you. Father, I don't know where people are at today, but I pray that your word would go to our hearts and maybe pick out one area maybe where we just were playing games with you and with others. And we determine today that's going to stop. And we're going to become transparent in that area, no matter what the cost, because we know that will be pleasing to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.
Amen.